The Start On Demand. On demand. As the RCMP scales back its search for the two BC murder fugitives in Manitoba, we'll speak to Global's Jeff Semple about the rising level of frustration and what comes next in this investigation. There was an armed standoff in St. James on Wednesday, not even five minutes away from the radio station. So Greg went to check it out. We'll give you a recap of what went down. And would you eat mustard ice cream? French's thinks enough people will because they made it just in time for National Mustard Day on Saturday, August 3rd. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, August 1st podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back next week. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte is here. And about four this morning, I get an email from Greg in all caps. This is disgusting. <laughs> is, that, is that the voice that was going through your head, Greg? Mm-hmm. Ish? Not ish. You got it bang on. What is disgusting? Yeah, you read that right uh, in the headline. <laughs> French is churns up yellow mustard ice cream for a bold spin on the classic condiment. We've seen our fair share of, this is from Good Morning America, by the way, Kelly McCarthy writes, we've seen our fair share of intentive flavors infused into frozen treats from black sesame to wasabi. One of our listeners saying they've tried the wasabi ice cream. Oh, interesting. Sounds like they like that. And now mustard producer French's has churned their classic condiment into ice cream, the brand behind the backyard barbecue staple, enlisted the expertise of female-founded Cool Haas, an ice cream and cookie sandwich company, to develop the bizarre creation for, get this, National Mustard Day, which is August 3rd. So, would you try the mustard ice cream? Tristan Field-Jones, Kelly Moore, just kind of looked uh, like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, so, okay, um... I'm tempted to dismiss it, but having said that, when I look at things like maple bacon donuts, as an example, and I tried one of those and I thought, that's not too bad. Maybe, maybe this is doable. Maybe, Kelly? On a hot dog. (laughs) I was going to say, you can dip your hot dog into the ice cream now. Yeah. Really? Well, have you ever tried Wendy's Frosty on your cheeseburger? No. It's no. actually really good. Oh, oh, okay. oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of people do that, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and I just think of some of the, uh, you know, some of the strange ingredients you can get on burgers and, I mean, you know, and one of Brett's favorite things, uh, uh, ham and pineapple pe- pizza. Shut you know, up. It's, it's, and it's what a, is the matter with that? There's nothing what? wrong with ham and oh, pineapple nice. pizza. If you take off the pineapple, it. I hate the ham and pineapple. Oh, See, oh, I, I just, oh. I just triggered Brett. He's going to be Brett, angry. What's the matter with that? It's disgusting. <laughs> it's that's a matter of personal taste. Uh, but the fact is, Brett, hey. whether you like it or not, a lot of people enjoy the ham and pineapple well, pizza. You're wrong. Right there. <laughs> so Kelly goes on to say, just just to give you a description. This is Kelly from Good Morning America. <laughs> Kelly McCarthy. Yeah. yeah. Overall, it tasted like more of a soft pretzel with a hint of the classic tangy mustard notes at the end. I'd even go so far as to say if you blindfolded me so I couldn't see the color, I might guess the flavor to be something like 
salted caramel. What? So how about that? That's interesting. It is. It's, it's, not, it. it's not just a bowl of mustard, right, Forche? Well, it looks so gross, though. It's so yellow. Like, there's the ice cream scoop going in it. it it's just yellow. It's Yeah. <laughs> it I tried like margarine. I would definitely try it, though. We yeah, should. I would try it too. You know, I, I am generally when it comes to ice cream, I'm not particularly adventurous. You walk into an ice cream shop and they've got uh-huh. how many flavors did Baskin Robbins have? Thirty one. Was it 30, 31 flavors? I believe so. Yeah. I only I'll usually get vanilla, chocolate. Uh, lately, I like the cookies and cream. Like whenever I get a blizzard, it's always Oreo every single time. And I, I look at the new flavors they've got, and I think hmm, that sounds interesting. I'll get an Oreo, please. It's just <laughs> right. Uh, I, I know yeah. what I like, and I stick with it. But I would try it if you gave me the French mustard ice cream. Why not? Yeah, I, I think I would too. Although I would probably prefer the blindfolded taste test, just so that. I didn't have a chance to see that bright yellow because I'm the same way as Brett, although I'm even more bland when it comes to ice cream. It's either chocolate or Neapolitan for me. That's that's about as adventurous as I get. Wow, look at you stepping outside the comfort zone. I know, isn't that, yeah. You know what this reminds me of, Greg? You remember when uh, when you and Brett were hosting the afternoon and I was filling in and we did the Bean Boozle Challenge? Yes, we, we did that. See, that was an interesting one because. Okay, what was the bean so, boozle so challenge? So, just to explain, um, the uh, the makers of I think it's Jelly Belly have these beans where there's multiple flavors in them. So, for instance, you might have two beans that are turquoise flavored. One of them is berry. The other one is toothpaste. Okay. Now. That's a tame version. If I recall correctly, there's one that might look, let's say, kind of peach colored. One of them tastes like peach. One of them tastes like vomit. And oh, so the challenge oh, is, wonderful. But, but the challenge is you don't know which one is which. So Greg and I, and, and we did this with a few people. I think Hal was with us too when we did this. And we, we tried it out. And to be honest, some of the unusual ones, like there was grass clippings, I think, and toothpaste, <laughs> that sort of thing, they weren't that bad. <laughs> On the flip side, though, the stinky socks and the spoiled milk and the dog food was... Oh, my God. It was terrible. Yeah. It was great radio, though. Great yeah. radio, and we did it on video as well on <laughs> Facebook Live. Uh, and I got the uh, puke. <laughs> you tried to weasel your way out of that, too. Oh, I can taste it now, <laughs> just thinking back on Have it. Have some mustard ice cream, that'll take the taste <laughs> it away. Will. It probably <laughs> will, Kelly. So uh, we want your suggestions at 7806868 of what would you if you could create your own ice cream what would that look like what would be in it we got mustard might as well do ketchup barbecue <laughs> sauce yeah. we're, we're in Canada we got we got ketchup chips so yeah, yeah. Well, our listeners said what's next uh, barbecue ripple ice cream now the ripple so there you go yeah I like yeah. the ripple actually my my suggestion is a caramel swirl or caramel ripple with cinnamon toast crunch well, that, that's delicious. There's nothing bizarre about that. I know, but that's yeah. if I was building an ice cream, that's that would be yeah. mine. Swiss cheese ice cream, cheddar cheese ice cream. We were asking about mm. Brett said cheese whiz. Ah, there saying, you go. Why yeah. not make a cheese whiz kind of ice cream? Mm-hmm. And uh, Uliana says that. Oh, we're talking about flavors and whatnot. Oh, donuts on Broadway has an everything bagel donut. So good. So, I mean, the, the, that's the thing. You get these weird flavor combinations. Sometimes they're good, sometimes not. Clearly, this was vetted by somebody. Sure. I mean, they're not doing this because they think it's terrible. 
They are getting a lot of uh, media attention. And they want well, people to try it. And by the sounds of thing, the flavor might actually be surprisingly good. One of our listeners just said, taco salad ice cream. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I mean, they, when you look at all the weird potato chip flavors they yeah. come out with, yeah. you know, like, why, why couldn't they make weird flavors for ice cream? I remember Lay's put out Montreal... Uh, steak Montreal steak or something like yeah. that yeah and yeah. it as a flavor and it should be gross but it was honestly like my favorite chip ever I couldn't get enough of those chips so it's, you know, sometimes you get caught off guard yeah geez the chips just did an oxymoron ice cream jalapeno ice cream Jalapeno, really? Jalapeno, yeah. You know, you have the good. ice cream to cool it down a little bit. Oh, I, I need some ice cream. <laughs> oh, damn, it's the jalapeno <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> so yesterday I left and just moseyed on home to St. Boniface, but you did not go home to North Kildon and you went just west of... Uh, our studio here at Polo Park. What happened on Ness? Yeah, we had a call into the newsroom and there wasn't anybody around to attend. And I was just wrapping up my day and I said, I'll pop over, see what's happening. Because it's not necessarily always as described. Well, it was everything and more. It was an arm standoff. TAC team had assembled. We, of course, had Ness Avenue closed in both directions between King Edward and Barry, And we're anticipating more details today about this situation, which took place uh, just well, five, six blocks from here. Winnipeg police closed off roads and swarmed a home in St. James yesterday morning. Around 10.30, a little after 10.35 this morning, we received a 911 call from residents on uh, Brooklyn. It was just um, just south of Ness. Uh, the nature of that phone call, which I can't get into at this point, indicated that there were some people in the house. One of the people uh, had a firearm. So we ended up sending a lot of units there. Some people got out, but not everyone initially. So when the person with the firearm won't come out, that becomes what's called an armed and barricaded. Uh, the people that were with him weren't kept, so there was no host- hostage taking per se. But um, we did end up having to take all the precautions that are necessary to make sure everyone's safe. We had people in the area evacuated. We had others uh, in residences shelter in place so that if there was uh, an exchange of gunfire that they would be safe. There's a park on the corner of King Edward and Ness with a wading pool. The water was actually running there, but there was nobody present. Uh, Police were directing pedestrians, telling them they had to go a different way. Uh, I was told that I was standing in an unsafe position at one point. Wow. And uh, Rob Carver was on the scene very early into the incident to ensure the public was well informed of what was taking place. He also joined Will Reimer and Julie Buckingham on the news yesterday afternoon. Global News reporter Amber Magookan relieved me of my duties and was on the scene for the rest of the afternoon. Officers told nearby residents to stay inside after a man barricaded himself indoors and was believed to be armed with a gun. With guns drawn and pointed squarely at a St. James home, it was a tense situation for residents. I'm afraid of any like uh, like a random like a bullet shot that might that might harm any like uh, a passerby or uh, one of those like uh, residents in this uh, neighborhood. Kind of like the crime shows you watch on TV. I mean, you don't normally see like the tag team come out and like their shields and their guns and everything. Police were called to the area around 10:30 in the morning Wednesday. Then the situation escalated. 
Multiple cruisers, armed officers, police dogs and the armored vehicle were brought to the area. Dennis Isagusto lives across the street from the house and was evacuated. What I didn't even look up front to see how many cop cars were here, but then when I got out the back, I said, wow, I saw the SWAT team out there. The ordeal ended about two and a half hours after it began with the suspect in custody and no injuries. This is always a win for us. If we can make sure everyone goes home safe, no injuries, then we've won. Uh, the neighborhood is safe, our officers are safe. The individual we arrested is safe. We still don't know who this suspect is or what motivated him today. It was quite the unsettling scene with all the resources deployed. You see on TV the guy, the TAC team with their Kevlar and their camouflage and their, you know, they didn't necessarily have their helmets on, but they had weapons drawn. It was super intense. In fact, Carver told us a couple times that we were, in fact, standing in the danger zone and that we needed to move ourselves and, in fact, moved everyone back. And, uh, well, Carver recaps uh, the resources that were deployed. We ended up deploying quite a number of, of units. Uh, General Patrol officers were there as well as tactical support team our uh, incident command structure was activated. Uh, we did have crisis negotiators uh, pulled. Ultimately, um, it uh, it resolved just the way we'd like it to. No one was hurt. No shots were fired. It took the um, better part of a couple of hours to do that. And uh, we certainly thank the patience of everyone in the neighborhood. Uh, I was out there, and, and uh, I know people were being very cooperative. They were I think thankful that you know we were there and making sure everyone was safe and, and when it was done it was I think a minor inconvenience certainly uh, caused some traffic issues but um, we we accomplished what we set out to do in those and, and have no one hurt. So we'll play a little bit more from Rob Carver later on this morning. He he will tell us about what police are learning. Unfortunately. I guess, from events like this. Uh, they're putting other uh, protocols into practice based on the experience they gain from these calls. You don't want them to ever go out to these things, but they are learning from them and and, and, and growing uh, from, from the experience. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back next week. Greg, you put on a new hat yesterday as a field reporter because there's a situation not two minutes from where we are sitting over on Ness uh, at Brooklyn. Yeah, I've been accustomed to mostly doing things that are associated with traffic situations and uh, nothing really like an armed standoff, which we encountered yesterday. They're just, hey, uh, sometimes you're the only guy. <laughs> there's no other girls. There's no other boys. Mackling, I guess you should go and take a look and see what's going on over there. And when I arrived on the scene, Brooklyn and Ness, it was for sure a traffic situation, but you quickly realized that it was much more than that. There were uh, technical team members on scene. There was an ambulance, multiple uh, Winnipeg Police Service vehicles, and eventually ARV, their big armed uh, vehicle, uh, came on the scene as well. Uh, a couple of times we were told by Rob Carver, Constable Rob Carver, with the uh, police information office that, hey, you guys need to not be on the sidewalk because if this guy does what he might do, you're going to be in the line of fire. And so there was a genuine concern for safety. Rob Carver uh, told uh, Julie Buckingham and Will Reimer yesterday that Winnipeg Police Service learns something every time something like this takes place. Julie drew comparisons between yesterday's events and one earlier this year on Bannerman Avenue, which was longer and considerably more intense. But she asked Rob, 
do police learn from these events? Absolutely. Uh, every single incident like that, there's a, a, an after-action analysis, an after-action report. We look at what was done. We look at what could have been done better or what could have been done different. Um, we look at whether or not changes in training need to be uh, implemented, um, even just su- subtle things in terms of communication. I, I think one of the things that, that we've learned is that, um, so myself, I, I was out fairly early, and, and I think... You know, the feedback we get from other officers is that early communication from the from the from our public information office helps people in the neighborhood understand what's happening. It helps the media not to put themselves maybe in in harm's way because they know that they can get the answers by just going to one particular spot and waiting till we start to talk. Um, so that's just a small example of the kind of changes we've slowly brought into play. Was that as a result of Bannerman? Bannerman really confirmed that model for us, um, that, that that all sorts of units need to be pulled out early. Uh, when I say pulled out, I, I mean brought out early, um, because uh, it, it just... It just makes things work so much smoother. And, and when things don't work smooth, that's when accidents can happen, when things can go sideways and, and people can get hurt. So we, we want it as smooth as possible. And, and I think today was textbook of how we'd like it to work. Getting that information out there as quick as possible, something we like as well. And we know the public appreciates that. So uh, hats off to the Winnipeg Police Service on that front yesterday. Last night I was driving home and I looked up at the fancy clouds, which I later learned are called Mamatis clouds, and I thought, I wonder if Tristan Field-Jones has hit the streets to chase this thing. Did you go out storm chasing yesterday? I did on a bit of an impromptu chase. Didn't see too, too much, but uh, those those clouds are absolutely remarkable. And I know Twitter was, people were, were posting pictures on Twitter. There was the Valor FC game that was taking place and everyone was looking up to the sky uh, to, to see what was going on here. Uh, and so um, I uh, had a quick chat with uh, Environment Canada meteorologist Shannon Moody about these, or fair to say, cotton ball-like clouds, if you will, marshmallow-like clouds, mm-hmm. however you want to describe them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Shannon Moody, she told me what causes these clouds to form. Yeah, those are mammatus clouds. So there are, they are quite common um, with thunderstorms. So you usually see them uh, kind of along the anvil of the thunderstorm. It's just cold air sinking down that creates those, uh, those very pretty clouds. And so that's really the gist of it. You see that kind of underneath those those anvils, especially with more powerful storms. There are numerous reports of large hail. On Twitter, we saw the biggest report of baseball-sized hail near Rathwell. Where Mo- is that, Rathwell? Rathwell is kind of southwest of the city. I think it's not far from Treehern. Okay. So sort of those areas. Uh, there were golf-ball-sized hail was reported northwest, south of the city. And in fact, um, on Twitter, if you look up the hashtag MBStorm, there's a remarkable picture of a UFO-shaped cell that was taken near the international border. And interestingly enough, at least one of these storms appeared to be heading right for Winnipeg, but we got away mostly unscathed. The Winnipeg weather shield yeah. works again. Well, it seems as if almost every time severe weather erupts, it tends to miss the city. There's a good line that had formed to the north of the city um, and to the west, and it did look like they were about to hit the city. But before it hit the city, it started to peter out, and there are a few storms that um, looked like they were headed to the city, but they ended up uh, just heading a little too far to the southeast. 
Um, you know, I've been a meteorologist for about 10 years, and that joke has been floating around uh, since I started about the storm shield in Winnipeg. So I think people see storms and you get excited, and of course you want to see them, but I mean, uh, you can't, I mean, they're not going to hit the Winnipeg, Winnipeg every time. I stand on my deck so often looking yeah. to the north and going, ah, another one missed us. But you know what, though? It is important to emphasize, though, that, and, and that does seem to be the trend over recent years, that Winnipeg has escaped mostly unscathed. It is important and essential to note that this city has a history of severe storms, has a history of reported tornadoes, you know, in the city center and those areas around there. And the fact is we are not immune to those violent twisters or like when I went on a storm chasing course with folks, with meteorologists and people who are professionals in the field, every single one of them told me it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we get hit by a really nasty tornado. So it is still worth taking those warnings seriously. It might be years or it might be next weekend. Who knows? So, but overall, hot and humid weather, by the way, sticking around. So we may not be done with storms just yet. All right, Tristan Field-Jones. Thank you very much, sir. You can see a picture of the Mamatis clouds from IG Field on our 680CJOB Instagram story. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is back next week, Sunday, August 4th to Saturday, August 17th. What is happening in Winnipeg, Greg? Well, it's the longest running and largest multicultural festival of its kind in the world. You know it as Folklorama celebrating 50 years this year. And Krista Mary Ash is Director of Marketing and Communications. She's in studio with us this morning on her way to a special event. Uh, I know you have had other events to keep us aware and remind us that Folklorama is on its way. What are you doing around noontime today? Yeah, we are going to be at City Hall and we're raising a special Folklorama flag in honor of our 50th anniversary. Yeah, 50th uh, logo is splendid. It's amazing. We have banners everywhere and of course you're seeing our advertising everywhere, so it's a special time for us. Well, it is and so congratulations on 50 years but it it seems as though this this festival has hit its stride in the last decade or so. The, the pavilions are as good as ever. They just seem to just uh, just fall into place. Yeah, it's a beautiful flow. And really what makes it so special is our volunteers. Uh, we have an amazing, dedicated group of volunteers that make it happen. Everybody you see from the door to the kitchen to performing on stage is a volunteer. So it's about them at the end of the day. And... It's really amazing to hear stories um, when you go to different pavilions and even lead up with the multi-generations of volunteers. You have grandfathers and uh, grandmothers and um, husbands and wives and kids coming up. Um, and they're a part of it. And that's why I believe we're so strong in the community is it's it's about the volunteers. Brett, you and I have spoken about this idea of there are certain things that are, feel like an obligation. And then once you go, you can imagine not going. I used to volunteer at one of the pavilions that doesn't exist anymore uh, back in the day. And my grandpa would ask me to volunteer a couple or three really? nights. And I'd... Yeah, Grandpa, I'll do it. And but but I forgot how much fun I had the year before. And then by the time my time is up, it's like, oh, we're already done. And it's it's just one of those things. It's a ton of work, but it ends up being a ton of fun because 
the p- patrons, the folks that come through, yeah. have such a blast learning and celebrating. Yeah, we're we're a folklorama family at the end of the day. It's about family. So it's a really special time. And the fact that we started um, as a one-time celebration and right. yeah, I for the centennial. Forget. Yeah. And here we are 50 late, 50 years later. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You were telling us a great story about the kickoff at uh, Cinnaboyne Park yeah. a, a week or so ago. And then we'll, uh, we'll before we let you run, we'll, we'll talk about what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a very special event on this past Saturday. It was our Folkorama kickoff and we were able to bring um, some newcomers from a organization called Needs to Assiniboine Park to partake in our kickoff. And they had a wonderful time. So it was two huge busloads of um, newcomers and they were able to take in the entertainment and uh, take in some of the food trucks and just overall the celebration that was going on at Assiniboine Park. So we were really grateful for that. And that's been an ongoing partnership and I'm really excited to, to see that grow over the years. Any new pavilions this year? Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited about the Egyptian pavilion. It's mm, going to be on ooh. at the U of M. Um, first time for them. So we're excited to see that. But all of our pavilions are so, so special. And there is something to see every single um, year. Pavilions are always changing it up, whether it's the food or the entertainment or the cultural displays. There's a a lot to, to offer. Now, um, if memory serves, last year you sold out of the VIP passes. We do have our VIP tours, and um, they were very close to selling out. So the VIP tour experience is really, really neat. That's kind of really the way to go. Uh, I would like to say so, but <laughs> I, you know, everyone has their own unique way okay, of seeing I it. I will say it's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. So what it is is um, you basically meet at a central point, which is, let's say, the... Um, pardon me, the convention center. And that's one of the stops that you could get picked up at. And then you can go to see two or three pavilions around the town. So you're picked up by motor coach and you are basically treated as a VIP. You don't have to wait in any lines. You have your own private tour guide and it's a wonderful way to experience the festival. But there is also something great about getting your tickets online ahead of time, um, which uh, also guarantees your entry into the pavilion now. There's not that waiting in line, which has been something that we have uh, been striving for and it's been going really, really well. And the public has been very supportive of that. It's 2019 and we're finally online, which I love. Um, So yeah, but the VIP tour is an excellent way, general admission. And then of course we have our Vicar Automotive Group Multipacks, which um, is a bulk of tickets that you can um, use for yourself or share amongst friends and family. How many people do you think are going to attend? Well, usually we see at least uh, 450,000 visitors across the two weeks. So it's it's an unbelievable uh, experience that that many people come out and celebrate this great festival. Folklorama.ca is the website, all the information, and of course now tickets available online. And what some people may or may not know is the fact that you have a set of pavilions open the first week and then those close down and then for the second week you have another set of pavilions which is fantastic because for a lot of years that wasn't the case and so volunteers and people involved at one pavilion couldn't go out and experience any other pavilions this is a great way for everybody to get involved including the people that work so hard to put this show on yeah absolutely it's a way for them to share in other people's culture right they're so dedicated to showing their culture uh, for a week long period but then they get to do experience it all over again um, we do have some duplicates uh, cultures, but then there's a whole array of cultures that they can experience over the, the next week. Another cool thing about Folklorama too is it's sometimes you can try things that you can't 
buy anywhere in Manitoba. Like I remember being at one pavilion, can't remember what it was, but I tried a beer and the only place in the city where you could try it was at that pavilion. Absolutely. For just that week. So it's really amazing that we bring in um, that, uh, that dynamic to the pavilions as well as different foods. Um, a lot of pavilions sell different um, items that you can only get um, there because there aren't necessarily stores that do cater to that particular culture. So it's uh, really a, a chance to have a unique experience. You know, I was calling before we came on the air that I can only imagine in other cities when uh, people would go and do their own cultural dance and celebration on weekends. Uh, they might get needled by their friends. But in Winnipeg, it was so cool to know that your friends were going to do Ukrainian dance or Hungarian dance, whatever their background was, because you would get to see... At Folklorama, the fruits of their labor, right? You would go and see your friends do their Irish dance, whatever they were were celebrating. And it, it's such a special part of Winnipeg. And uh, happy 50th. You don't look a day over 25, <laughs> Krista. Thank you so much. We can't wait to see everybody come out and experience the 50th this year. August 4th to the 17th, folklorama.ca. Krista Mary Ash is the Director of Marketing and Communications from Folklorama. Thank you very much for the visit, Krista. We've already talked about the wasabi, creamed corn, lavender, and basil chocolate bear, uh, basil chocolate and berry jalapeno. Wow. So somebody mentioned jalapeno ice cream. I think it was Kelly Moore that mentioned it. And then we uh, also have been interacting with Chris from Dutch Made. He used to make the dill pickle ice cream once upon a time. Asked him if they made any other funky flavors. He said, nope, that was the funky one. And he says, in my opinion, it wasn't really that good. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we ask our guest here, Greg, if he would eat mustard ice cream before we talk football. Doug Brown, would you try mustard ice cream? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) I love Doug Brown. He's usually not that succinct, though. No diatribe, Doug? No philosophy surrounding that? One of my personal philosophies is not to try and ruin something that is already good, so just for the sake of being different. So I am certainly not a subscriber to those kind of theories where you, uh, oh, look at how creative I am by making something awful. Uh, That's just really not my thing. (laughs) Well put, well articulated, as per usual. Hey, hey Doug, uh, speaking of which, are the Winnipeg Blue Bombers still considered a good football team despite the loss against Hamilton last week? Yeah, I mean, what are we, one-third of the way through the the CFL football season, and they're uh, 5-1, and soon to be 6-1, and as everyone expects, out uh, against the Toronto Argonauts, so... Uh, that's good enough for first place in the Western Division, good enough for first overall in, in the CFL. So I think, uh, you know, it's hard to go 18 games and, and not have some hiccups and not have some blemishes on your record. So I think this is, uh, you know, this is par for the course. It's to be expected through an 18-game schedule. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are, are very um, interested to see how they respond and how they react to the first that first blemish they've had on their record. What do you say to people that say, well, they lost to the first decent team they played? <laughs> well, I think Edmonton's a pretty good football team. I think that it, that ignores a lot of uh, uh, truths about about the, the caliber of, of opponents in the CFL this year. Um, I don't think there are a lot of great teams 
uh, right now in the Canadian Football League, which may speak to uh, some of the decline in numbers right now. But uh, Edmonton is certainly in the mix in the in the Western Division, and uh, you know it was surprising and disappointing um, what happened in Hamilton, especially with uh, the starting quarterback. Jeremiah Mazzoli going down in, in the first quarter and not being able to mount a comeback. But, uh, you know, to say they haven't played any good teams, um, you know, I think that is a little bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction or, or, you know, someone trying to play a, an opinion that doesn't really vibe with the, the Winnipeg Football Club. Doug Bombers, of course, are saying they're not taking the Argos lightly, despite the fact that they are 0-6. But is it hard when you come up uh, against a team that, that is seemingly hapless to maybe not... <laughs> take them lightly yeah it's very hard especially when you're playing in toronto as well and there's nobody there and you're just like wow so this team hasn't won a game nobody cares and nobody's here it sounds like a practice out here um it's uh it's a certainly it's just eerie it's a totally different environment for a football player to come in where you're not combating that home field advantage and uh, you're not facing down a, a record or a roster that really, you know, threatens you or concerns you in, in a great deal. But you know, if you're if you're not sharp on your fundamentals and and uh, what you're responsible for as a as a player, part of a bigger uh, cog of the offense and, and defense, you know that can come away fast. You know, the the margins between winning and losing in, in pro football, you know, have so much to do with the work week and, and the preparation. Uh, that you have going into it, and and just your focus on game day. So, uh, if you're just a little off of your best, uh, that can that can leave your team vulnerable and open for a big upset. And if Winnipeg loses a second in a row to the Toronto Argonauts of all football teams, uh, then there'll really be uh, some head scratchers and and some comments made by the national media. That's for sure. If you look back over your decade uh, with the Bombers, can you think of a time where? a football team you were on took an opposition too lightly or a team stepped up that you didn't expect to step up and you found yourself on the wrong end of a game that you should have won. Yeah. Maybe a few great cups. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to mention yeah. the 2001 great cup, but since you mentioned it, cup playing against a, uh, an eight and 10 football team. Now we, we knew Calgary was good. Then I would say more recently, uh, probably when we went into uh, Labor Day in Saskatchewan, when we were seven and one, and they were one and seven, I think we uh, uh, underestimated the difference that a, a coaching change would have. They had just fired Greg Marshall, and they brought back uh, Ken Miller, I believe, to, to lead their football team, and that really rallied uh, that organization and those players. And Saskatchewan is always difficult to play in the Labor Day Classic, as it is already. So I think uh, you know. The fact that we had billboards screaming out that you know we were the uh, the opposite uh, on the positive side of the spectrum from a one and seven to a seven and one record uh, going up against them, uh, I think we might have uh, miscalculated how difficult uh, it was to go into there. But Toronto, like I said, completely different environment than uh, going to Labor Day Classic against Saskatchewan, whether they're a good team or not. Well, at least two weeks later, you still had the opposite record of the Rough Riders. You were seven and three; <laughs> they were three and seven. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. <laughs> awesome. Just quickly tell you about uh, another headline at cjob.com. Dead hogs spill onto perimeter highway, back up traffic. And 
somebody sent us a picture of this. This is on the perimeter at Plessy's Road, and uh, we didn't share this this picture, but it was a it was a literal bloodbath. Like these hogs, these dead hogs fell off of a truck, I guess, and uh, there was blood on the highway, and it was just it was horrific. But when I read our copy, I got to be honest. When I read our copy, I on our website, I was quite frankly kind of disgusted with this, and I. It could just be a coincidence, but I, I think that there was probably some an attempt at clever wordplay here, mm-hmm. and I think I'm angry. So I'll just read it to you. Rush hour traffic on the perimeter highway backed up Wednesday after a load of what appeared to be dead pigs spilled onto the highway, hogging the roadway. My initial reaction was, come on, really? Like, are we a news organization or are we a, a parody? Is this a, is this a, it's a, this is a joke? So I, w- I just I wanted to share that with you that, you know, yes, we're part of the global news team, but you and I, Greg, were show hosts and we get to say our opinions. And my opinion on this particular web copy, garbage. A lot of people were, I would suspect, uh, traumatized uh, might be a word in play. I've seen the pictures. They were disgusting. They were horrific. They were unlike anything I've ever seen. We had at least one text message and an accompanying picture from a truck driver who has said they have been driving truck for a long time, have seen a lot of things on the highway and never had their stomach churn and turn the way it did when they saw that site. So uh, I think uh, this was, I think, sometimes viewed as a not a serious news story, but I think for anybody who encountered it and saw it with their own two eyes, it was definitely not one of those fun news stories of the day. Yeah, so I just wanted to share that with you. You can read more at cjob.com. We have connected with Global's Jeff Semple, who joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Jeff, you're in Winnipeg. Where are you? Yeah, I'm in Winnipeg, Winnipeg right in front of uh, the uh, RCMP headquarters here on uh, Portage Street. So it's nice to be in town. Well, it's great to have you here, Jeff. And uh, one of the questions that we've been bouncing around the newsroom this morning is this entire story has not only the attention of Manitoba, Canada, but the rest of the world because of where two of the three victims, suspected victims of these fugitives are from. And so we were wondering if you have a sense of how this is painting uh, Manitoba and what sort of light and Canada in general that we a haven't been able to track down these fugitives. And of course, a lot of the language used to describe Northern Manitoba hasn't necessarily been all that complimentary in terms of the conditions and the, and the environment up there. It's not exactly what you would call a tourism video or commercial. No, that's true. I don't think uh, yeah, you're going to see a boost in people going looking to go hiking near Gillam, Manitoba. Unfortunately, based on some of the coverage, you're right. And I think the, you know the Guardian newspaper in the UK uh, got very excited with that picture of the polar bear that was posted by police during their search. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've, you've seen the. I'm sure you've seen the one that uh, was posted as they were conducting an aerial surveillance of the area looking for these two suspects. Uh, as you say, I mean, this story has is not just national; it is international. Not only because of where the victim 
victims are from, but also because of the fact that this manhunt has just dragged on for so long, now into its 10th day, the last confirmed sighting of these suspects now a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a lot of attention being paid, I think, even internationally to just the the size of the landscape that we're talking about. I mean, you know, Manitoba's top Mountie said yesterday that they had scoured 11,000 square kilometers of bush uh, and swamp, that they had canvassed 500 homes, followed up on 300 tips, and yet still it appears they are no closer to finding these two suspects this morning. Yeah, now, we, now there's reports that uh, police are looking into uh, something in Capascasing, Ontario, over a thousand kilometers away. Yeah, that's right. Uh, worth noting that this is not a confirmed sighting, but it's credible enough that Ontario Provincial Police are taking it seriously. A construction worker in Capascasing, with his, which is a small town in northern Ontario, not far from Timmins, Ontario, he phoned police yesterday morning after he says he saw two men who fit the suspect descriptions. They were driving a white car through a construction site along a highway. So he called it in. Police responded, they said, right away, but they weren't able to find anything. And they also noted that over the last week or so, police in Ontario have actually received dozens of calls with people seeing people seeing sus seeing people on the street or in a cars that they think fit the suspect's description. So I think if nothing else, uh, it is a reflection of the fact that the anxiety surrounding this case is now stretched far beyond the borders of uh, of Gillum, Manitoba, and you know even even Ontario. This is now very much a national manhunt because they, you know it has just gone on for so long with no sign of these suspects. It's interesting that you mentioned the idea that this has really put into perspective how vast a country Canada is, how remote some of our communities are, and just how much uh, forest and and un undeveloped uh, land there is in Canada, just such a huge country and, and the rest of the world uh, really getting a taste of that now. Uh, but resources and, and RCMP yesterday admitting that, that they would have to scale back this uh, manhunt, at least from the perspective of using uh, Gillum as their headquarters and the base for this search. Do you get the sense that there is a stress on resources and and with any organization, and I mentioned this, I think, yesterday, including our own, having to make decisions on how to deploy those resources because they are not infinite. That's right. And we are talking about a, you know, a 24-7 manhunt that is now into its 10th day. And no doubt that did factor into the calculus for police and their decision yesterday to begin what they're calling a phased withdrawal that will begin today and last about a week or so. The vast majority of their manpower, their equipment, uh, that Royal Canadian Air Force plane, all of that packing up and heading home. The police are stressing that there will still be a police presence in Gillum and the surrounding communities, but, you know, significantly less than what they've become used to seeing. And no doubt a feeling of unease in the town of Gillum this morning as they watch the RCMP, many of them pack up and head home without any resolution to this manhunt. And uh, they're also under fire because advocates are now saying the amount of resources that have gone into this are a stark contrast to resources applied to searches for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, immediately, I think the question we were asking in the newsroom when we heard about this case was, you know, was the highway that these... Um, that, that these suspects were, or the, the victims were found on, excuse me, was it the Highway of Tears, of course, the notorious highway that is so closely linked to that, the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. So, yeah, certainly, you know, a lot of, a lot of questions being asked in, in that regard, fairly many of them. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, we have, a, you know, a Canadian victim, an Australian victim, an American victim,
victim, I think, has just added pressure on the RCMP to get bring this case to a close. And the fact that you have two teenagers, an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, who are, according to their family members, self-trained survivalists who have managed to... Uh-oh. Did we, I think we just lost Global's Jeff Semple. We could walk and talk to Jeff Semple in about uh, six minutes from where we're sitting. <laughs> We've had Jeff Semple on our program from Europe. We've had him on uh, tie line from various locations around the world. I think that's the first time we've ever dropped him, and he's never been closer to us. Yeah. So how about that? Jeff Semple, Global News, here in Winnipeg. I'm sure you'll be hearing uh, from Jeff throughout the day on our various programs, uh, answering questions, so many of them that have gone unanswered to this point and continue to be unanswered. And the one I have, Brett, is how comfortable will Canadians be at some point just looking forward and and imagining, let's just suggest that these assailants uh, go uncaptured and RCMP at some point say that, that they are presumed dead. How comfortable are Canadians going to be with that if there's no proof of, uh, of such a thing? That, that's the presumption based on whatever evidence the, the RCMP has or more importantly doesn't have that they are still alive. It's, it's a question that keeps bouncing around in my head. Would that be a satisfactory conclusion for people in Canada? Well, we've got Global's Jeff Semple back. Why don't we just quickly ask him that? Jeff, how much of Greg's uh, question did you just hear? Yeah, sorry about the technical difficulties there. And I did catch the back end of it, as you say. I mean, the prospect that, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of wondering about now, which is, will this just remain an open case indefinitely if, you know, for example, if these two suspects had were killed either by their own hand or by the wilderness in northern Manitoba. The fact that their remains may never be recovered. I mean, this is, you know, increasingly becoming a, a possible outcome to all of this. And in a case like that, you know, we may never have this case just re- may remain open indefinitely and just how unsettling that would be, particularly for people in those communities most effective like Gillum, Manitoba, um, that they would just always be sort of looking over their shoulder and, you know, talking to people there, hearing from people in that community, a community where people, so everybody knew everybody in a community of 1,200 people, people used to leaving their doors unlocked uh, overnight. Uh, you know, I'm sure that this has had an impact on the psyche in that community and others around it for sure. Uh, I remember even just reporting in... Um, in, in Europe uh, recently, where I, I w- was deployed for a few years and covering the case of the manhunt for Salah Abdeslam, who was one of the ISIS militants who was involved in uh, some of the terrorist attacks on that continent. Salah Abdeslam managed to hide in in uh, Belgium for over a year, um, and, and he was hiding in an apartment. He was he managed to take refuge there, and you know remember talking to people there a year later. Um, not knowing where this guy was and that they just were never able to relax. And I was sort of reflecting on on their comments now, given where we are in this investigation. Very early yet, of course, you know, we are still only a few weeks into this and there there are precedents for cases like this in Canada where people have turned up after 30 days, after seven weeks. So, you know, probably too early to start uh, talking, going too far down that road. But it is uh, an unsettling potential outcome of this, that this case may never be closed. Global's Jeff Sample joining us live from RCMP headquarters in Winnipeg. Jeff, thank you very much for this. We appreciate the visit. Great to talk with you. Thanks, guys. It is Bomber Game Day. Bombers in Toronto. Pre-game show at 4 o'clock, which means no edition of the news tonight. And then the kickoff 
at 6. So I guess no sports show either. No sports show? With Cam Poitras filling in for Christian O'Mell this week. Well, we want to talk Bombers right now. Obviously, we're anxious for the future of the, this team as we move through the campaign, but you've got to look back sometimes, and you've got three amazing-looking books there, Greg, they, sitting in front of you. They are absolutely gorgeous. It's a series of three books to this point. Uh, the first one is Quiet Hero, the Ken Plain story. The second one is the Don Jonas era. And then the third one is uh, my era of the Blue Bombers that I grew up with. Dieter Brock through the championship years, of course, the Grey Cups in 84, 88, and 1990. And, of course, 1990, the last time this team won a Grey Cup. Roy Rosmus is here. He's uh, one of the co-authors of these beautiful books, along with uh, our old friend Scott Taylor. And, Roy, thanks for spending some time with us, but more so... Thank you for capturing the history of our football club because we're in a dry spell in terms of championships. But I think most of us know that this team has a glorious history and you're doing an amazing job in recapturing this and sharing it with so many people. Why are you doing this? Where did your passion come from? Wow. Um, well, always been a passionate Bomber fan as long as I can remember. I, I, I've been watching the team for 60 years. I guess it started with Ken Plain, you know, 56, 57. Uh, I suppose I sort of became a student of the game. And over the years, um, uh, I guess I, I just kept track of everything. And then when I started to get involved with uh, doing uh, a variety of children's charity dinners, uh, having the the boys there, along with the present bombers, I wanted to have a mix. Started to get to know them even better, and then I'm so fortunate to have become a friend, I'm proud to say, of Kenny Plain. And I said, Kenny, is there anything out there on you? He said, no. I said, really? He said, yeah, we've been approached several times, but nothing happened. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Well, I'll tell you what. When he took me into his confidence, into his house, talked to me, showed me an amazing book he's got with his entire career, uh, newspaper clippings and stories from 1957 Rose Bowl till he retired, which is why I was able to write that book. And then I thought, well, you know what? I know a lot about the Bombers, so I'm going to start going on the rest of the history. Fabulous. So that's where the idea for, for doing the rest of these books come, uh, has come from. Iowa Hawkeyes, right? Ken Plain? Yep, yep. And that Rose Bowl. There's footage out on YouTube, out on the internet, yep. of his incredible performance. He was, I think, the MVP of that yes, game. He was. Yes, he was. And then he came to Canada, and he wasn't just a quarterback, though. He did so many things. Well, I have an argument one day, if anybody wants to take up with me. I called him the greatest, quote, football player in history, either side of the border. And the reason I say that is because he played every position, and when you look at it, break it down, the, his four great cups, he was instrumental in all of them, quarterback or not. In 58, as a defensive back, he picked off a pass at the end of the game to preserve the victory. That's 50, uh, 50 uh, no, yeah, 58. But before that, he had run from halfback position 41 yards to the one-yard line to set up the game-winning touchdown by Jim Van Pelt. In 59, he was pure quarterback, in 61, he had the overtime run. In 62, uh, he played defense and offense and got that last punt to preserve the victory. So Spectacular. I mean, I think a lot of people think of Jerry James as the best athlete that ever played for the Blue Bombers. I mean, when you play in the Grey Cup and the Stanley Cup final in the same year, that, that's pretty impressive. It is. In fact, in the book, I, make, uh, I say Bo Who, because long before Bo Jackson... 
we had Jerry James. You talk about uh, hockey and football as opposed to baseball and football. I think there's a huge difference. And it's just too bad there's not more video, not more film yeah. of those, the first set of glory years for the Blue Bombers from the, you know, the Bud Grant era. It would be incredible to be able to capture that. And so you've done this in book fashion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you're working on another one, kind yeah. of a prequel to yeah. all the, the yeah. first three yeah. books that you've written. But the, the Dieter Brock era through till 1990, so many changes, right? Dieter yeah. Brock was arguably one of the best quarterbacks to ever play in Canada. Uh, You know, different circumstances, not the least of which were the existence of those Edmonton Eskimo teams, right? Tom Wilkinson and and then Warren Moon. Like, come on, really? Like, because it needed to get any more difficult for the Blue Bombers to break through. You could argue, aside from those teams, the Blue Bomber teams had great cup teams at least once or twice when Dieter Brock was here. absolutely, for sure. I mean, you look at that roughing penalty at the end of the game, probably the only one John Helton ever got in his entire life. You're talking the 1982 Western Final. I mean, it was over. Third down, we nail them. And excuse me, John Hilton, I don't, but anyways, there was that one. So, you know, (laughs) and then I guess it was, ooh, was it Trevor? Uh, Kettered? Or, yeah, it was Trevor. Hit a goal post, I think, on a a, um, a field goal at the end of one game. Or missed three field goals in one game that he would never miss in his life. But he did. And, of course, he came back anyways, didn't he, as a great camp champ? Yeah, sure did. Lots of uh, wonderful stories that we could tell about the Blue Bombers. And so what? tell us about this latest project. Well, the latest project actually is volume one. I did them out of order on purpose, trying to be a a marketing guru here. You see, I started with uh, the Kenny Plane and then went to Jonas and which is actually volume two and the Dieter Brock, which is volume three. And then I figured the interest would be there because I didn't know with this, this new one, uh, the beginning through the golden years, uh, 1930 to 1967, how it would be received. So wet the appetite first, but working on this one that I thought would be a slam dunk and eh, this, that, it's so, eh, I'm blown away by what I've come up with and, and the history of this team. Um, Give you an example. Um, for the W, okay. Well, for the W actually started in 1935. Come on. No, because that was the only year the Bombers ever wore a jersey with a great big white W on the front. How fascinating! And, is that? You know, I'm looking at that going, wow, oh, wow. So 85 years ago, next year will be that first Great Cup, and next year is the 90th anniversary of the club, by the way. And I'm trying to drum up some interest somehow in doing something for this 90th anniversary. Now, who's left? Bud Irving, I think I was telling you earlier, 93 Mm -hmm. years old. But I'm also trying to get a hold of some of the families, which I've been able to do. And I want to tell them I'm out there. uh, I want to honor these guys. So many Winnipeggers on that team. In fact, I'm so proud in this one here. If you look in the other books where I have um, a a title page for the Grey Cup and put the quarterback or whoever. Well, in this one here, in 39... I'm featuring on the uh, Great Cup page a fellow by the name of Andy Bieber, Winnipegger. He's the hero of that Great Cup. Scored the only uh, touchdown in an 8-7 win. In was the, that Ottawa? Yeah, Ottawa. Yeah. 41 against Ottawa again. And here's a guy who was Walby before he was Walby. There's a guy by the name of Chess McCants. I got stories to tell you what this boy did. And I feature him because he won it with a field goal. So we got two Winnipeggers featured in Great Cups. In those first. So 
there's so much I can't even begin to tell you that I, I, I'm in a rabbit hole, the stuff I've been finding out. Can you tell us who Jeff Nicklin was in 30 seconds before we let you go? I know his story yeah. is incredible, but... Kids kids have to know to spend. Well, everybody has to know. Yeah, Jeff Nicklin, Winnipegger, all-around athlete, uh, two-time Grey Cup champion, gave it all up, went to war for his country. And died in the war in 1945 on a parachute jump into Germany towards the end of the war. And um, I, I, what can you say about this guy? The rest of his stories in the book, uh, he had one son who has since passed. He's got two grandchildren that I'm trying to find to let them know that I want to honor his father, their grandfather. So, yeah, he's, he's a story in, in and of himself as a Winnipegger. How have the past players receive these books? Well, they love it. Uh, again, I, it's great for me being a bomber in that case. I get to be buddies with all these guys now. Uh, you know, we get together. They support me uh, um, any way they can. I've become friends with Don Jonas, too. Uh, I spent time at his place in Florida. He loved that somebody was doing this book on him. Kenny Plains, my friend, Chris Walby. I'm I'm a shoulder rubber right now, and I'm loving it all my <laughs> life, and I get to be friends with bombers. <laughs> well, it's been really cool talking to you. The passion just oozes out of you. You're so excited. And again, there are three books. You're working on another one, Illustrated yep. Stories of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Where can we get these books? Uh, right now, Chapters, um, St. Vitell. Uh, it's Indigo Chapters on uh, Keniston. Mm-hmm. Um, With this Mc- chapters over here? Uh, no, not here. Uh, McNally Robinson. And there's two Coles, one in City Place, one in um, I want to say KP. Kildo- yeah, I want to KP. say Kildona. And, and or you can contact me and get them directly from me too. So You've got a that? Twitter handle. What is it? Oh, Twitter handle is Heart, Heart O Blue Gold. Heart O Blue Gold, yep. as in the blue and gold, the bombers. Roy Rosmus and Scott Taylor put these books together. We spoke with Roy. Hey, real pleasure to meet you, Roy. Thank you Same for this. here. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.